You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 112, The Battle of White Plains. When we last left General Washington, he was holding firm at Harlem Heights on Manhattan Island. Having created a series of defensive lines, he waited patiently for British General Howe's frontal assault. Washington expected that in such an attack, he would inflict large numbers of casualties on the British, even if he had to give up the field. The problem for Washington was that, since Bunker Hill, General Howe was not stupid enough to attempt a frontal assault against an entrenched enemy. Washington had given Howe several opportunities for such an attack, but Howe refused to take the bait. In holding this ground, though, Washington did not consider the danger to his army. Holding an entrenched area on Manhattan Island meant that the British could easily sail north of Washington's entrenched position, land a force, and effectively surround the Continental Army. Fortunately for the Continentals, Howe ignored General Clinton's advice to do just that, land a force to the north, capture King's Bridge, and cut off Washington's army from any line of retreat. Instead, after meeting resistance at Harlem Heights, on September 16, 1776, Howe did what he usually did, set up camp, entrench his troops in defensive lines, and sit around for weeks doing nothing. It appears that Howe was waiting to hear from Canada. He knew Generals Carleton and Burgoyne planned to invade Lake Champlain and make their way down toward Albany. From there, that 10,000-man Northern Army would be in Washington's rear, while Howe still sat in front of Washington's lines. The Continentals would have no choice but to see the hopelessness of their cause. They would surrender and allow the Howe brothers to work out generous peace terms with the king, all without having a major battle that could kill thousands. As we learned on last week's show, though, the Canadian commander, General Carleton, could be just as conservative as Howe. After the Battle of Valcour Island and destroying Arnold's fleet on Lake Champlain, Carleton decided that late October was too late in the year to begin his invasion of New York. He pulled his forces back to Canada and waited for spring. So with nothing happening in the north, Howe finally concluded that he needed to do something about Washington's army. He still rejected Clinton's plans to land a large army behind the enemy and trap them. Instead, Howe permitted Clinton to perform another water landing a few miles up the East River at Throg's Neck, often mistakenly called Frog's Neck in many of the contemporary reports. Throg's Neck was a peninsula on the East River a few miles north of Kipps Bay and just on the northern side of the Harlem River. 
it was not far north enough for the British to get around Washington's rear and cut off his army from retreat. It was about due east of Washington's headquarters at Harlem Heights. By marching from there to the west, the British could threaten Washington's position, but still give him time to retreat further north. In the early morning hours of October 12th, Clinton's army of 4,000 returned to Kipps Bay and boarded a fleet of Navy warships and transport vessels. The fleet got underway shortly after dawn, moving up the East River toward Throg's Neck. A heavy fog set in over the river, making the journey extremely dangerous. The fleet of 80 ships had to pass through an already dangerous part of the river known as Hell's Gate, full of rocks and whirlpools that could damage a ship even in good weather. Admiral Richard Howe personally commanded the expedition and somehow guided the fleet to its destination. Only one small ship carrying three cannon and a few men wrecked and sank. That the bulk of the fleet made it through the treacherous waters in such bad weather is a testament both to the skill of Admiral Howe's navy and probably also to some good luck. British reports indicate they encountered feeble resistance upon landing. There were probably not more than a few lookouts in the area. The real problems for the British started after the landing. Throg's Neck was an island at high tide. Even at low tide, the only way to cross from the Neck onto the mainland was across a bridge. The Continental General Heath had removed the bridge planks days earlier just in case the British decided to land there. On the other side of where the bridge was were 25 Continental riflemen who could harass the British and prevent them from attempting to cross and repair the bridge. The British advance force instead threw up a defensive barrier and returned fire. Another Continental Guard blocked a marshy ford where the British might be able to pass. Thus, because of the landing point chosen, less than 100 Americans could block the advance of Clinton's 4,000-man army. A member of the New York Provincial Congress noted later, quote, Had they, meaning the British, pushed their imaginations to discover the worst place, they could not have succeeded better than they have done, end quote. Rather than attempt to push through or return to the ships and move upriver, the British did what they did best, sit and wait. They spent several more days camping at Throg's Neck and awaiting further supplies. Meanwhile, Washington deployed more reinforcements to prevent the British from getting off the Neck. Over the next few days, about 1,800 Americans moved into the area to contest any British advance. About the same time Washington was preparing to contest the British attack at Throg's Neck, General Charles Lee returned from the South. Lee was probably at the height of his popularity following his victory at Fort Sullivan in South Carolina. As I discussed in an earlier episode, Colonel Moultrie defeated the British at Fort Sullivan only by ignoring Lee's advice to retreat and give up the fort before the British even attacked. Still, Lee was the commander on the scene and received credit for the only clear American victory in a major battle against regulars so far. Washington assigned Lee to command the left flank of the Continental forces 
which included the area along the East River that appeared to be where the British were launching their attack. Lee, who had been an experienced British officer before the war, took one look at the map and essentially told Washington and his generals, Are you guys crazy? The only reason the British had not landed north of you and trapped your entire army yet is that they seem to be bigger idiots than you. We need to retreat across Knightsbridge right away. We need to move further north so that we don't fall into a British trap. The next day, in response to Lee's advice, Washington held a council of war with his top generals. They agreed to abandon Harlem Heights and move across the Harlem River to White Plains. There, the mountains provided a natural defensive area. It also served as a continental supply depot for the materials shipped to the army from New England. Days later, Colonel Joseph Reed credited Lee's wake-up call for saving the army from certain destruction. On the other side, British General Henry Clinton agreed that the precipitous retreat, combined with the British delay at Throg's Neck, saved the Continental Army. After the Continentals began their retreat to White Plains, General Howe finally conceded what everyone else had realized for days. His landing at Throg's Neck was a huge mistake. He ordered Clinton and his 4,000 soldiers back onto their 80 ships and moved further upriver. The Continentals were on the move, but the lack of horses and wagons slowed that move. The British might still beat the Americans to White Plains and take control of the hills before the Americans could entrench themselves. The British chose to land at Pelham Bay, but before they left Throg's Neck, several deserters slipped into the American lines and informed the Continentals of Howe's new plans. To oppose Howe, Lee deployed what amounted to two regiments under the command of Colonel John Glover, the same mariner who had ferried Washington's army from Long Island to New York for the successful retreat from the Battle of Brooklyn. Now he had a chance to prove himself on land. In the early morning hours of October 18th, Glover saw Howe's fleet landing at Pelham Bay. The British apparently began the landing before dawn, and all 4,000 were ashore before the Americans could engage them. As Glover advanced his men to engage the enemy, he encountered an advance enemy company of about 30 soldiers. Glover deployed 40 men to engage the force while he deployed his defensive lines behind the fighting. Glover made use of stone walls dividing farm pastures that fell at intervals along either side of the road leading inland. The Continentals deployed behind the walls. As the British forced the American advance guard to retreat, they pushed forward expecting a rout. When the British approached the first stone wall, the Americans stood up, fired a volley at close range, forcing the British to stagger back. The two sides exchanged volleys as the British brought up their cannons. The Americans, greatly outnumbered, fell back in good order as the next line of Americans lay behind the next stone wall ready to repeat the process. Eventually, the armies reached a creek which Glover had set up as his final line of defense. He had pulled up the bridge crossing the creek and deployed his full force of over 700 men along the creek's far side to prevent the enemy from crossing. Glover also had a few cannon to back up his infantry, 
the British failed to cross the creek, but continued to exchange artillery fire until nightfall. Under the cover of darkness, Glover's brigade slipped away and marched the three miles to join up with the main Continental force. The Battle of Pelham's Bay led to a few American casualties, uh, eight killed and 13 wounded. The number of British casualties is a matter of dispute. In his official report, General Clinton reported only three dead and 20 wounded. But Clinton only reported the British casualties, not the Hessian ones. The Hessians made up about 3,000 of the 4,000-man force that engaged in battle, and were involved in some of the heaviest fighting. Estimates there range from 200 to 1,000 dead and wounded among the Hessians. Now, while I suspect the lower range of that estimate is closer to the truth, it still was a lopsided battle and a dearly bought victory for the British and Hessian soldiers. Outnumbered by about five to one, the Americans never expected to hold the field. The American defense in that battle provided the Continental Army with a successful delaying action, keeping the British from attacking the main Continental Column all day. This gave Washington the valuable time he needed to move the Continental Army out of danger. Rather than moving directly on Washington's retreating column the following day, Howe ordered the army to move north to New Rochelle. There, the army waited another three days until 8,000 Hessians, who had just made the Atlantic crossing, could come up from Staten Island to join the forces pursuing Washington. The new Hessians came under the command of General William von Neiphausen. Both sides continued to trudge north slowly. The Continentals were slow because they lacked horses and wagons to carry all their artillery and baggage. The British and Hessians just seemed to move at a leisurely pace, stopping for a few days here and there in various towns along the way. As Washington struggled to get his army over the Harlem River at Knightsbridge, he sent Colonel Rufus Putnam to search out the British Army's position. I'm not sure why he sent a chief engineer on such a mission, especially when he had officers who were much more familiar with the local area than the colonel from Massachusetts. But Putnam set out on his own to find the enemy. He learned from local militia that Howe's forces were only about nine miles down the road from White Plains. If the British had occupied the Heights first and linked up with the naval forces under Admiral Howe on the Hudson River, Washington's army would have been cut off from any line of retreat. Putnam rushed back to Washington's camp and got Washington to push forward on a night march so that they could take White Plains first. General Howe, though, was still waiting for the Hessians. Putnam discovered the British position on October 19th but General Howe did not move until October 22nd. When the British did finally move, they marched another few miles up the road from New Rochelle to Malmerinec and paused there for another four days. By the time the British and Hessians finally started moving again, the Continental Army had had almost a week to occupy and entrench its defenses at White Plains, making a direct assault inadvisable. Washington had positioned the Continental Lines between the Bronx River on his right and a smaller creek and marshy area to the left, making a British flanking attack on his lines much more difficult. 
while the now 14,000 British and Hessian forces could have taken the Continentals, Howe feared another Bunker Hill level of casualties. Howe's second-in-command, General Clinton, who had been urging faster movement all along, also agreed that a direct assault at this point would be a mistake. Instead, General Howe stopped again and waited for a better opportunity to engage the Continentals. General Clinton led the British contingent and Knyphausen led the Hessians. The combined force moved to occupy the high ground at Chatterton Hill. This was right across the Bronx River, but would give the British the high ground overlooking the Continental right flank. From there, the British could use artillery to drive the Americans from the field. On October 28th, they attempted to occupy Chatterton Hill. As soon as Washington learned that the British were crossing the Bronx River, he realized that Chatterton Hill was the obvious goal. He sent General Alexander McDougall, who you may recall from many episodes back had been one of the Sons of Liberty troublemakers in New York City. Now, as a general, he would support the few militia units already on the hill. Other deployed officers included Major Benjamin Talmadge, who will become important in future episodes, and Captain Alexander Hamilton's artillery. This combined force would try to deny the hill to the enemy. The Continentals first deployed a few companies as a delaying action to slow the British and Hessians from crossing the Bronx River and approaching the hill. This gave General McDougall time to get his soldiers onto the hill itself. The Hessians led a few tentative assaults on the hill, but were driven back each time. The British eventually decided they needed to launch an all-out coordinated assault on the hill using 4,000 troops. They organized the attack in three prongs. Colonel Rawl would lead the charge up the hill on the American right. Another Hessian, Colonel Carl von Dunop, led a second charge against the center and British General Alexander Leslie would lead the British regulars against the American left flank. Colonel Johann Rawls' aggressive assault ended up scattering the militia on the American right flank. Rawl had been one of those newly arrived in America Hessian reinforcements. A few months later, he would find himself in charge of the Trenton outpost during Christmas. After Rawl scattered the militia, he was able to push into the American center on Chatterton Hill. The Americans did not panic this time. Colonel John Hazlitt's Delaware Regiment, which had been one of the few to stand and fight at the Battle of Long Island, stood and fought once again on Chatterton Hill, providing covering fire for the rest of the Americans to retreat. Hazlitt's regiment then maintained its own orderly retreat off the hill giving way to the superior British and Hessian assaults while keeping their lines in good order. The fighting on Chatterton Hill cost the British and Hessians about 200 casualties, while the Americans lost about 175. Since this was just part of the overall Battle of White Plains, casualty estimates are not very precise, but basically it was close to a draw in terms of casualties. The British took the hill, which gives them the victory. They then entrenched themselves and prepared for a final assault on the main American lines. But Howe, again, was still not interested in an aggressive attack. After capturing Chatterton Hill, 
the two armies spent the rest of the day mostly lobbing artillery shells at each other without much impact. With British artillery now able to destroy the Continental right flank, the British could have launched a final assault and crushed the Continental line. Instead, Howe did what he normally did, gave Washington a chance to realize that his position was untenable and that he should retreat from the field. Howe reinforced his position on Chatterton Hill and maintained his lines directly facing the American lines but did not advance. The two armies stood there and looked at each other for another two days as the Americans awaited the final assault that never came. On October 30th, General Lord Percy arrived from New York City with seven more regiments of Hessians. Even with additional forces, the British still did not attack. According to Howe, he had planned to attack on the 31st, but did not do so because of a terrible rainstorm. Washington finally decided that the Continental Army should retreat north. On November 1st, before dawn, the Continentals began to pull out and march north. The continuing rain gave cover to the retreat. Howe did not bother to pursue or harass the retreating Continental Army. At first, the Continentals moved back about five miles to North Castle Heights, where they would be in a better position to resist a British attack. But the British never bothered to pursue them. General Howe kept the British and Hessian soldiers in camp for several more days, finally abandoning White Plains and retreating south. Washington, realizing he would not have to occupy the favorable ground for a battle, continued his retreat north. At Peekskill, he took his army across the Hudson River into New Jersey. With Washington's retreat, the only continental occupation on Manhattan Island remained the stronghold at Fort Washington. Next week, General Howe will turn his attention to the capture of Fort Washington, making his control of Manhattan complete. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now They even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. I want to thank the continued support of Liberty & Co., 
a member of the Robert Morris Circle on Patreon. Tyler Franz, who runs Liberty & Co., sells a wide range of revolution and constitution-related items. He has some great t-shirts with logos related to the nation's founding, such as a 1775 militia shirt, one with the Moultrie flag on it, even the familiar join or die logo that I love to use for my podcast. If you're looking for ways to show your love of the American Revolution, a t-shirt from Liberty & Co. might just be what you need. Tyler also donates a portion of his profits to the Museum of the American Revolution, and on top of that, you can get a 20% discount if you enter the promo code AMREV, that's A-M-R-E-V, at checkout. If that's not enough, Tyler is now offering free shipping on everything, so a great time to stock up on your American Revolution items. This week, we looked at the Battle of White Plains, which really wasn't much of a battle. It was more of a delaying action, as the rear guard of the Continental Army slowed the advance of the British and Hessians in order to give Washington time to take the main body of soldiers on an escape to the north. It was all part of the larger campaign where the British very slowly but steadily nudged the Americans off of Manhattan and back to New Jersey. Even though I say it wasn't much of a battle, of course it absolutely was a battle to the men who fought and died there. It's sometimes easy to get blasé about skirmishes where a few dozen or a few hundred men die, especially when we think of more modern battles where results can be the deaths of tens of thousands or even more in a single battle. Those smaller numbers, though, make it no less comforting for the men engaged in the actual combat, desperately fighting and dying in this conflict. It's also sometimes easy, when reading a book or listening to a podcast, to forget about the relentless suffering these men endured every single day, even on days where there was no combat. Imagine marching 20 miles in a cold November rain in ill-fitting shoes, or no shoes at all, without a raincoat or umbrella, and probably carrying 30 or 40 pounds of equipment. Soldiers had to endure that sort of thing just about every day. If you get sick on the march, that was just too bad. If you were hungry or had horrible diarrhea, that was just too bad. You had to endure there was nowhere for you to go. If you were on a line of a few hundred men shooting at a few hundred enemy, that was just as scary as having thousands of men with you shooting at thousands of enemy. It's with all this in mind that brings me to today's book recommendation, a narrative of some of the adventures and dangers and sufferings of a Revolutionary War soldier by Joseph Plum Martin. I mentioned this book in a main episode a few weeks ago. Martin was an enlisted man who served in the Continental Army. He joined in Connecticut in 1776 as part of the call for soldiers to defend New York City and remained in service until the end of the war in 1783, mustering out as a sergeant. His book, written years later, focuses on the real-life sufferings of an enlisted man during the American Revolution. It's really amazing to have a first-person account of all of this. Uh, It was also published under the title Yankee Doodle Soldier in the 1960s. So if you see that, different title, same book. 
If you read my blog, I've been citing Martin's book in my free ebook section for many episodes now. Although the book has been out of copyright for you know nearly two centuries, I haven't found a decent quality ebook that is available for free. The one that exists on archive.org is of such low quality that it's almost unreadable. Martin first published this book, very small run, anonymously in 1830, and it was virtually forgotten until the 1950s. For that reason, almost all copies of the book are still claimed under copyright, even though Martin's original text is in public domain. The result of all this is that if you want a decent copy, you should probably buy one. And anyone who is interested in the American Revolution should read this book. It's not terribly long, it's a primary source, and it's full of interesting stories. I've placed a link to a pretty good paperback version on my website, amrevpodcast.com, or in my blog. So, if you get a chance, you really should check out Joseph Plum Martin's narrative. This week's online recommendation is Liberty from PBS. The website is www.pbs.org slash ktca slash liberty. The website has some nice extras about the show and a trivia game. You can't watch the actual series there, but the episodes are available for free on YouTube. Just search for Liberty PBS. For those of you who are unfamiliar, Liberty is a six-episode series that covers the entire revolution. It has a wide number of commentators talking about events of the time period. Obviously, it doesn't go into as much detail as my podcast, but it does have much better production value. If you have friends who are interested in the revolution and just want to spend a few hours listening to the basics, this might be a good option for them. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.